Uh, have you ever had one of those weeks where it's just like every night there's a different reason why you can't sleep? <laughs> oh God. How many, how many kids do you have again? I only have two kids. I only have two dogs. Um, but it's, it, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a joint probability problem. I, right? I feel like, like the problem a, with your statement is only two dogs. Only two dogs. Yeah, the two uh, the dog the dogs like play into it. Combine that with two kids. I just feel like you have five days in a week, and some days there's going to be a problem with at least one kid or dog every day of the, those weeks. Yeah, I mean, so. I I only have two kids and only have one dog. And I have definitely experienced this problem. So, like, you add another dog into the mix or another kid into the mix, like, then you're just talking about factorial explosion. Yes, factorial dog explosion. See, and not having either kids or dogs at this point, I like to have very strongly correlated bad nights. So it's more (laughs) like one too many beers, too big of a burrito, and then probably a taco that was excessive. Oh, man, you, like, mix a beer into that, and good lord. Owned it. Uh, all right, so we have we have a guest here that I'd like to introduce. It's it feels like a, a long time since we've recorded, but we're back with uh, Dave. And Dave, you know what? I don't think I've ever heard your your, <laughs> name, your last name said, said out loud. Sure, Guarino. Guarino. All right. So I don't know if you know the band Guar. I do. So it's just Guar. They, they with, definitely you know, chewed through some foam rubber back in their day. Yes, they did. Yes. Uh, so I yeah, have no idea what you guys are talking. You about. You don't know? About, oh, okay. Yeah, I guess I wouldn't have pegged you as a Guar fan. Um, um, monster metal, like, yeah, it's weird. It's not, great. not so much. But like, I would, I will also say in general that if you have to ask someone, "Have you heard of this band?" The chances are very, very good that I have not okay. heard of this band, unless they're Canadian. Right. I, like, you know, like Tragically Hip is definitely a band that most people would say, who have you ever heard of the Tragically Hip? So, yeah. so, so yes, ex- <laughs> except that like in Canada, that was not niche. So like, <laughs> yes, you, agreed. Yeah. yeah. So like you didn't have to ask people in Canada, have yeah. you heard of the Tragically Hip or have you heard of the Bare Naked Ladies before they got big here? Uh, and so... So, like, I, I feel like the heuristic still kind of applies that, like, if you have to ask, have you heard of this band? The answer is no, I have not heard of that band. All right. Sure. Niche in Canada. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, Dave, you want to give, like, give a little introduction to, of yourself to, the, sure. to our listeners? Um, well, I guess I'm a weirdo because I've done a lot of different things. Um, I just finished five years of working at a nonprofit called Code for America, which is a Nonprofit that works to improve the delivery of government services uh, through technology and partnering with government. And I worked specifically on uh, the food stamp program in California and increasing access. We built a thing called Get CalFresh. It's getcalfresh.org if you want to check it out. And the idea was build something that streamlines the process of getting people help because there's about uh, 2 million people, a little less than 2 million people across the state who are eligible for uh, what's called CalFresh or Food Stamp Program, SNAP, um, who are not getting it. And it makes a big difference because California, given the cost of living, when you take that into account, has the highest poverty rate in the country. And, um, you know, you're looking at an average benefit of, you know, 180, 80 or so bucks a month that is going to a family, you know, making not much money at all and living, dealing with the cost of living, particularly in, you know, high cost of living parts of California. So it's a big deal. Worked on it for five years. Um, started as the only engineer on that, and then eventually became sort of uh, lead engineering as we grew that. But then moved over and became the director of the work uh, once we built up a big team and just finishing that up. And before that, I had done a bunch of things. Um, most immediately prior, I was actually a fellow at Code for America. Worked with um, the city of South Bend, Indiana, on something out there. And then before that. Um, all over the place, uh, health policy, and uh, was in the actuarial world. I'm probably a weirdo on that front. Uh, I was an actuarial analyst. I was not an actuary. I want to be very clear because of the licensure rules. I did not take the tests, <laughs> but I did do actuarial analysis, and I love health policy and health uh, health coverage policy. So that's sort of me. I live in Oakland. I love it. Well, you live in it. Oakland. I, th- I, th- I thought I had pegged you as at Alameda. Oh, no, no. I just adore the fairy. Okay. Um, I am the founder of the Never Bart movement, which is basically showing the way that another commute is possible if you ride the Water Emergency Transportation Authority's wonderful ferry system. The ferry system is nice. Yeah. Um, I am an always Bart 
I'm sorry. Yeah. Yes. No, it's fine. There's no judgment. It's more like shifting the Overton window. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I am a prefer not Bart, but will take it when I have to. Fair. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I, I like Bart. I, yeah. I, I like Bart because uh, I mentally compare it with Muni. <laughs> Fair. You know, I also did. I used to live in the inner sunset. And so the end Judah is the nadir of my transit experiences. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, and I, I think uh, I, you know, coming from uh, some urban econ background, mm-hmm. light rail is bad. Buses are not great. Fixed rail underground where it doesn't interfere with traffic, or mm. yeah, is a little bit, a little bit better. Don't bring that to some urbanists. Urbanists are like, look, uh, rapid bus transit is the way, the truth, and the light. They are, yeah. they are up on it. Just from a like pure technical perspective. Now, granted, this is the whole weird thing about how Oakland had a bus system that went to the airport from BART mm-hmm. that was, in fact, faster and orders maybe an order of magnitude cheaper than the little train they built. Mm-hmm. And they still built the train because yeah. the experience. Because they people like, oh, I don't want to get off the BART. I'm, I'm open to hearing it, but yeah. like, I, yeah. I'm often very confused by urbanist arguments. I, I, I always feel like most of that actually just comes from, like, what is the infrastructure cost to to build these things here because mm-hmm. like if you if you look at, at the platonic ideal like it is very clearly not rapid transit bus yeah though then you get into a really interesting question of like well is it i'm a big fan of path dependence yep and you're yeah, a fan I mean, of it or are you well no <laughs> I'm an, as in as in as in you have to acknowledge yes. that it exists i think path yeah. dependence explains yeah. a lot more of reality than we give it credit for and so i yeah. tend to think that I like to do the thinking on the margin. So I tend to think sometimes those arguments are good, though I think we're in a really interesting place right now, and particularly in California, where you have a long, a bunch of long-term things we could do probably as yeah. investments yeah. that we're not doing that would be would get us to a sort of step function increase that we're not doing because it's, it's we're so stuck on the margin right now. So there's a there's a middle space, but okay. So so <laughs> so so I think that that this actually leads in mm-hmm. to one of the places where. Your your experience in government is 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 probably very very interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. Because, uh, like this question of like, do I work on the margins or mm-hmm. like, do I do yeah. I make a large infrastructure investment? Is mm-hmm. something that comes up all of the time. <laughs> I want to I, I want to preface this with we we have a decent like of our hundreds of listeners. We have some that work in the government sector, but mm-hmm. not all. So like I. Th- I think doing data and engineering work uh, in government it needs a little preamble. Yeah. Like, can we can we open the the doors yeah. of, of sympathetic imagination for <laughs> for people who haven't done it? Sure. So, um, I mean, and, and I want to be very clear in, in my choice of words, which you know, we worked with government, but in some ways, our work was as a partner to government, and so I I, I want that's to perfect. It's, yeah. yeah. No, I agree. I mean, I think it had actually a lot of structural advantages. Um, you know, I never, I know people who work in government and they literally, their constraint is they have to use, let's say, um, Python because literally they can't get a sysadmin to install Ruby or whatever. I mean, pick a thing. That sounds pretty good. Yeah, I mean, even <laughs> yeah, that would, yeah. I mean, I, I, <laughs> of course, yeah. yes. Um, more, I mean, more common is you're using something, I mean, you're, you're literally doing everything in VBA and Excel because getting R is, yeah. is a six month project. Mm-hmm. Now that said, like, I don't want to play up to those, um, I think false conceptions because there's been a lot of progress made. So broadly in government, um, there's a lot of people who now are in government kind of coming out of this movement era that started, uh, a, f- a number of years ago and was, and I think Code America was part of the genesis of, of this, of talking about how, well, we can probably put technology, modern technology together with government and do a lot of good. There's a lot of opportunity there. Um, an old friend of mine used to say that um, their personal bet and gambit was that if you, like, technology is very good at scale. It's one of the most powerful scaled mechanisms we have in society. And government is the other big scaled mechanism we have in society. So if you put those two together, they're very powerful. So broadly, government, technology, data, blah, blah, blah. Um, Yeah, that's that's sort of interesting because, like, I – I, I would actually think of it almost exactly the opposite. Oh, really? Like, yeah, because you have these two systems that are built for scale. Like, mm-hmm. systems that are built for scale tend to be highly adapted to, mm-hmm. like, the environments that they sit in. 
So it's like you're basically trying to combine two boulders and, <laughs> and like stick it inside a jar as opposed to like sand. Oh, interesting. Right. I can buy that. And I think, yeah, definitely there are parts of that being reality. On the whole, though, I mean, the fundamentals are there where if you think about, I mean, everything that's really operating at a very big scale in like, I mean, think about Medicare compared to even like the biggest health, private health insurer is like big program. Um, social security, you know, disability, a lot of these programs are just very, very, very large. Um, yeah. and I, I, I do agree that mm-hmm. the combination of government and technology, mm-hmm. if you can make it work, will be extremely powerful. Yeah. Um, is it hard? Yes. It, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, it's just like taking two things that are already at scale and combining them. Like, I feel like that is an incredibly difficult problem. It can be. I think the fundamentals, if you, I, I, the way I conceptualize technology in this way is more as fuel and it's like fuel you can put into a car yeah. and it scales things, but it's more of a scaling factor than necess- uh, necessarily at scale. Um, yeah. cause where I, the metaphor that I would see is more similar to actually I mean, not to stick too much with healthcare, but it's yeah. a domain you know, to be talked about. Um, those are two domains that operate at scale. Yeah. And when government and healthcare, which do overlap, do hit, I think that's where the boulders coming together is a little bit more. I think with technology, um, it's more this translation problem that is more general to technology uh, expansion phase into domains that are just slow to pick them up. And often it's because they're big systems that yeah. serve a lot of people and can't just kind of be, uh, they can't have high acceptability of downside risk. They have to be like, well, you know, actually that kind of thing is really bad. And we have for a lot of these in the, in the context of government, I mean, what distinguishes government is simply that we get to that through public accountability processes. So we don't have a market governing it and saying these are the limits and bankruptcy is the mechanism by which we'll, we'll push an entity out. Like yeah. literally these organizations do not go out of business. Yeah. And so they adapt and accrete everything over time, yeah. which of course has its problems. Um, but to the broad question of sort of data and government, I mean, government is one of the biggest holders of data, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, they're a producer of data. There's a lot of people who sort of view government. Um, there's this idea of government as a platform where, uh, and then an open data movement, which was trying to get government to release a lot of the data that it had so that things could be built up with it. Because a lot of the data it's collecting and using is useful externally. And if you can have interfaces to just get at it, people can build on top of that. And and there's a bunch of examples of this. Um, but get into once you start to get into the details of that kind of thing, you do start to see where the rubber hits the road. And you have to make some really hard choices in terms of the cost of implementation, I just mean like time and effort and stuff and like what's valuable, what's not, and where's the highest value on the margin. Because it's very easy to just very quickly be like, we're going to just release all the data. And that's not super useful. But there's definitely a few data sets that are critically valuable. And you think of some of the stuff in terms of, I forget, again, I'm not going to make this a healthcare conversation, but like the Medicare claim stuff that they release, right, is extremely useful. Um, but also is part of a, it has a lot more discretion that goes into it rather than just like if they said, we release all claims data on, <laughs> into this API or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of people who are now working government. In fact, um, there's some people who are down in the city of LA. Uh, a lot of cities, municipal governments have data scientists on staff now. Um, states and the federal government has this. Um, it's kind of becoming a skill that is used more. Um, there's certainly a lot of problems to be solved and again, really impactful problems broadly because decision-making can be at a very big scale. Um, so the data is often just awful. So, so do you, do you have a sense for like, if there's a data scientist that works for a municipal government, Mm -hmm. what are the classes of problems that they are actually working on? So, and this would be a good, I'm just going to tease, there are definitely people you get on who can talk about in better detail. So if you're interested in this, listeners, write in and say, hey, we'd love to hear from them. Um, So let me think. So some of the classes of problem may be, um, the classic ones are kind of what you'd think of as business intelligence problems Mm -hmm. in, in, in the private sector. So uh, I've worked with people who want to work on code enforcement. So you want to say, we want to be better at code enforcement. We don't have um, enough enforcement officers to go out and actually get everyone. So we want to look at where it is more valuable. By code, you mean building code. 
Correct. Yes, yeah. that's a good. That's yeah. Code definitely an ov- overloaded term soft in this yeah. case. Yeah. So soft toy buildings um, is a parochial interest of mine. Seismic safety, but um, but actually this was a thing that came up. Uh, if people are familiar with the ghost ship fire that happened in Oakland, yeah. it's a really big tragedy where more than thirty people died. Um, a, there's a large discussion about what was the city's role or not, and a large part of it comes down to. Um, well, how do you effectively enforce code? Because uh, there's a lot of trade-offs you have to make. If you really do have a limited resource, where are you going to send people out? Um, if you're doing code enforcement, like someone's getting a, a permit and you see something that's out of code, this has been a big issue uh, recently with after the ghost ship fires. Yeah. Like, well, people they will send inf- code enforcement officers to live workspaces that are maybe like art- artist spaces like the ghost ship warehouse was. And the question is, well, are is are we now as a city going to say anything that's not um, up to code, we're just immediately going to shutter? But that's going to evict a lot of people who are probably then yeah. going to be displaced from Oakland. Or do you do some sort of safe haven? And how do you get at the things that are actually the, the substantive safety issues? Like if the goal is, well, we want to make sure no one dies, that's different than simply we're enforcing the code and getting the maximum number of violations or whatever. Well, and, and, and presumably also, like, if you're super strict on the code, then you're actually just incentivizing people to try to go around it. Yes, totally. As opposed to the thing you actually want. Yes, um, and that's definitely that's something that you have to take into account. Is there sort of this is I actually really like I borrow a phrase from Brad DeLong, prominent economist. I knew he'd come Shout out, out. <laughs> yeah, um, love Brad DeLong. He was a professor of mine at Berkeley. Actually, I really I think he's a very interesting and thoughtful guy and, and uh, interesting writer. And uh, he he likes to talk about really existing socialism. Mm-hmm. And he talked about it to describe like well, communism had all these details in the implementation that you really can't separate from the ideology because in implementing that ideology you stumble upon, well, literally, what's the work plan for the day? Uh-huh. And I like to think about that for sort of really existing regulation. It's like, well, the implementation is a part of the policy because if you if you don't take into account what the trade-offs are going to be in the implementation, for example, if you only have X enforcement officers, yeah. it doesn't matter. There's actually, I'm not going to pick on Oakland. I love the city of Oakland, but they have struggles. And there's a big article that just came out that basically said the city passed a law on homeowner move-in evictions. And the city, some uh, I think NBC followed up on it and did all these public uh, public uh, information requests and got the data and basically found that the city was not enforcing a lot of the rules have been passed by the city council. And part of that is just staffing. So so government is also this kind of complex system where it's not like, okay, we yeah. find the problem and then we solve it. It's really many-dimensional chess because you get into staffing and you get into competing priorities where the priorities are not set by a unitary actor but literally by political processes. Yeah. So you're like, okay, great. And it, it, um, uh, my friend Alan, likes to, Alan Williams has a great phrase that he came up with, which is the incoherence of the compromise, which is to put that a lot of public policies end up being a compromise of political processes. And for those public servants who end up having to implement them, there can be a baked in incoherence because it was a compromise and it didn't necessarily have yeah. the implementation in the middle. So, yeah. That is, oh, like, I would like to echo that you see that in the private sector quite a bit. Yeah. Right? Totally, and and yeah. you, you split the like, and we've all been there. And a lot, I would say more often than not, the, you know, the dumb centrist take within uh, within politics and within uh, companies is wrong, mm-hmm. right? The, yeah. Like compromise between two positions accomplishes neither goal. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, yeah. This is this is actually one of the reasons why I I, I believe very strongly in small teams because yeah. like the the wisdom of the crowd like forces you through the middle and like the middle pathway in most. Co- in most commercial enterprise is just a bad place to be. It is, it is, it is, you know, basically you're like sticking lipstick on a pig. Uh, it, if, if, if that's the direction Mm -hmm. that you're moving, you kind of like want to be at one of, at one of the edges Mm -hmm. and like let the population as a whole fill out the rest of that, of that distribution mm-hmm. and then let the market decide which of the edges is the correct place to be. Yeah. And I think that's where with government, it's an interesting thing because that I think many people, particularly fans of like public choice theory and economics will say like, yeah, and this is the argument for 
markets as a mechanism for distributed choices and distributed information. Um, And the idea that there is no one individual that can have perfect information and there's not even necessarily a perfect choice to be made. But if you have a lot of people who have a little bit of like some substantive skin in the game, their choices and preferences and information can be aggregated into some equilibrium that is better than, in theory, the sort of median or aggregation. Or, like, centrally planned. Yes. Like, this is how it's going to be. Yes. Now, now the corollary to that, of course, is that even if you grant, which, I mean, it's a a position, so I don't necessarily grant it in all contexts. Again, I'm a big fan of path dependence, so I think it's context-specific. But even if you grant that you can have a preference for that being how you get to good outcomes, the role of government is literally to solve the problems that cannot be solved by that. I mean, yeah. it is market yeah, failure. Yeah, no, like, there's I, a set I, of problems. Yeah. Yeah. I, I am not arguing that no, I know, markets I know. should govern everything like that. Um, yeah, but I think that's, but that's the interesting despite, part about despite government. Despite my libertarian leanings. Totally. But, no, no, but yeah. I think that's where there is a synthesis between even, you know, people who have more libertarian beliefs and this where there are there are a set of well-known problems that you almost definitionally cannot solve through those mechanisms. And so the interesting work of government, which is hard and frustrating and can grind you down, is literally working on those problems that are extremely impactful in both terms of scale and the depth of impact often, and which baked in have those constraints around solving them. You can't have a small team solving some of these problems. You can't have small unitary actors just making decisions. And so how do you solve big public problems given the constraints that uh, you have baked into that process is a hard challenge, but it's also work worth doing. And and you can, when you get a win, it is so good. It is so good, right? Um, I had this, you mentioned soft story buildings. I like lobbied for this dumb retrofit ordinance over and over again. But we finally got it five years later and I could have fought just to get my building retrofitted, which is, you know, seismically unsafe. And as an aside, would not have worked because I emailed my building property manager and they were like, oh, uh, we don't believe it's a soft story. And I said, here is the public record that I FOIA'd. Here it is. Your company signed this. But I don't have the leverage to do that. But now this is going to happen for literally 25,000 housing units. Mm. So, you know, once you solve that skill, and I'll tell you, it was a frustrating process. It took five years of work. And I was not, it was a lot of people working on this. Um, but it it matters. And it, it when you get those wins, they're big. So, okay, so... Distributionally, so it's like once every five years. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's how value is created in the yeah, world, yeah, totally. I, think, I, would, I would argue. I think one of the themes that we've had on this podcast is that you, people look for linear progress in things, yeah. and it's a mistake a yes. lot of the time. Yeah, I, I, I have a... I mean, this is... I, I've come to a very strong belief around mm-hmm. the power law of value generation mm-hmm. in almost everything, mm-hmm. which, like, basically means that, like, no matter what – and I think about this a lot in, in the context uh, uh, um, of, of uh, data science teams. Mm-hmm. And, ba- and, and what I've sort of come to is, like, no matter what time period you look at, mm-hmm. there will be one to three things that dominate all of the value generation, mm-hmm. whether that period is a week or a month or three months, or a year, or five years, like, there will just be one to three things that have, that, that dominate your, your, like, uh, value accrual curve, Hmm. uh, which, you know, which, which, which basically tells you that, that, uh, how important, uh, decision making actually is, and how kind of ill-suited we as humans are for it mm-hmm. because we want that like linear iterative process. Mm-hmm. And that's just not, it, it doesn't appear to me that that's how the world works at all. Yeah. <laughs> you want to be able right? to feel that incremental uh, yeah, yeah. progress. And, and, and like, those are the problems that are easiest to work on. Yeah. And so like at the end of the day, yeah. like you're, you're, you might look back over the last five years and say like, I did thousands of things yeah. over this last five years, but this one thing, mm-hmm. Uh, just blew them all out of the water in terms of, of how much value it actually created mm-hmm. for uh, uh, f- uh, for the world. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, my experience is, like, that is always how it is. <laughs> like, there yeah. is always, like, one or two things over, over, over any period that just dominate the value curve. 
And when you understand that, it changes what you want to spend your time working on. Mm-hmm. Like, like you do want to go after the hard problem where you're like, all right, if I solve this, bang, like huge value yeah. creation. You do get into an interesting information problem, which is like, do you have information to evaluate that? Or yeah. are you better off just spreading yeah, right. bets? Yeah, yeah. So my old, my old so boss used the, to say, like, uh, a, the difference between a, like, in the first step, a con convex i can never remember what is it concave convex or concave the one that goes up the one that goes up uh, the one that, like is, the first step of a n- convex convex yeah. of a convex problem and the first step of one where you don't make any progress look, look exactly, exactly the same, same. yeah um, yeah and most of the world most yeah. of the everyone says they're working on a convex problem yeah and there are more problems where you just yeah. make no progress yeah so mm-hmm. my 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 theory on this is that the the strategy is actually like Lots of little bets, mm-hmm. and then, and then double, triple, quadruple down aggressively when yeah. it looks like something is lifting off of that curve. Yeah, because you can't tell the difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that is a different thing than waiting towards problems that, like you know, you can make little incremental. Totally. Uh, yeah. Uh, 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 progress on over over some time period because that will just eat up all of your time, yes. but not actually get you anywhere. One, well, and I think that is the real hard part. I saw this all the time in government, and, and you know, I saw it actually as well because we were a multidisciplinary team uh, on the Get Coffers team at Code for America, where we had engineers and designers and user researchers and data scientists and um, product manager and uh, partnerships and program staff who worked primarily on the government side. And we had client success who worked primarily with the clients, like answering customer support in a commercial context. And it was this hard problem because in particular for people, I think, and and I identify as as an engineer. um, I really love writing code. It's what gives me a lot of joy in the world. And I think even putting on my hat and I think working with a lot of engineers this is where Agile gets a lot of criticisms, and I think rightfully, which is it can sometimes keep you in a local, like, optimization rather than no, a global that's one. That's what I hate about And that's it. the problem. Yeah, no, yeah. and, and it, you kind of need to do these big, bold, ambitious things, and um, I think that's where kind of – I actually really like – my favorite kind of engineering is actually those crazy – insane things where you just spike something and you go after the big thing and see what happens with a small scale user base. Mm-hmm. That's also not a thing. That's a, that's a, a disposition that not a lot of people have. Um, so I have a maybe macro bet in my career that like, that's a useful skill because I would rather go on those crazy adventures. Um, but like the only question is like maximize how many crazy adventures you go on, yeah. uh, which is not the worst, but also, yeah, you could totally burn years on things that will not pay off. But I think the corollary with analysis is there as well. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I wanted to like, you talk a lot about political economy being a useful guide to inside an organization. And I thought, I thought maybe we could spend a little time on that. Like you, like my, my very short summary would be Hmm. little economy is the study of decision-making within groups. Hmm. Um, And, it makes predictions about like who like how decisions are going to be made given who cares more. Mm-hmm. And I think you've said often that like your biggest frustration with software development is that people really um, kind of naively assume that like decision making like the rational actor decision making mm-hmm. is going to be should be present is going to be present one of those two things mm-hmm. and they don't really get into depth on like who is going to make this decision. Why? What do mm-hmm. we have to think about in terms of like their their non cognitive uh, functions when mm-hmm. we're, we're thinking about? It? Is that a, is that a reasonable summary? Yeah, I think I um, I think that's right, and I I would almost um, to give one layer of depth. I think uh, beyond sort of how people make decisions in groups, um, uh, a useful Ill- sort of description that I think uh, exists is that it's it's also sort of understanding how. Um, resources get allocated in markets and how resources get allocated in non-market organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, there was this, I think it was on the Econ Talk podcast, they talked about how the funny thing that we don't talk about in markets is like every market is made up of these organizations called firms mm-hmm. and every firm is a little command economy. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. it's it's a little like Soviet, you know, yeah. bureau. So yeah. what's the deal with that? Like if we think that markets are how we should make decisions, why is it that companies are not run as markets? And there's it's interesting because there's a lot of, you know, you get into well maybe a superset of 
of economics is in fact organizational behavior because it is, like you're saying, making decisions in groups. Um, I do think that it's both. I, I get frustrated more. Were these uh, 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 were these uh, macroeconomists? No, no, who were, no. 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 macroeconomists okay, ignore all that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. It was like, what does this like? What are these big yeah. aggregate numbers look like? Sure, <laughs> just decide. Like economists like described this as like a breakthrough when we were, they were able to like say why there are firms. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, like, it's definitely, like, yeah. We I discover mean, the obvious all of the time. Yeah, I mean, um, I, 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 I would guess as as a non-economist, uh-huh. like, my hypothesis on this would be that there is a, uh, that, 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 that a market is actually defined by, by the unit of work that it wants, not by the decision-making. I, it, I think it's actually more decision-making. I think if you dig into it, generally what people talk about, and this is why there's some interesting work recently, I think... It, um, the economist won a Nobel Prize for organ, basically organ donation markets, and but they're not markets. Yeah. So it is simply a structure of resources and uh, search across sort of, a, in this case, two dimensions. So you have one set of individuals or actors yeah. who have one resource and are looking at another set of individuals with some resource or need. And how do they match? How do they yeah. decide and that kind of thing? But, like, that's what I mean in, in <laughs> like, unit of work. when I say unit of work, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, like, what is the thing the market is trying to extract? Um, and so, and so in, in the example that you just gave, mm-hmm. like, the unit of work is an organ moving from a, from, from, from a person, a, an entity that has it to an entity that needs it. Yeah, but, I, uh, yes, and so, yes. Uh, and so in that sense, like your distribution is actually going to be around the entities that 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 can do those two things. Mm-hmm. And those might there's no reason to expect that in and of themselves, those entities should be markets. They're they're just actors. Well, I think the market is definitionally what happens when they interact in an integrated yeah. context. Yeah. And so I, I, I actually, and I, I would push back a little bit on the idea of like what the market is serving to do. Cause actually that's the whole point is that markets are distributed uh, decision-making and distributed choice. And so the, the implicit anthropomorphization of saying that what is the market trying to provide is actually what I push back on. Because like what markets are are just a way where individual actors are in, interacting in some way. And that's why, you know, economists and like game theorists, for example, in particular, will say that it's actually all about strategic interaction. It's not about there being specifically a market where there's a price mechanism. That's just one sort yeah, of structure. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I totally agree with that. Yeah. It's just like when I'm thinking about it, it's like, the the framing of uh, like like the context around what that market is trying mm-hmm. to do matters. No, yeah, it does. No, I don't disagree with that. But and, and that gets in, that segues well into the political economy, which is like really actually understanding the macro context of the incentives of actors and interest of actors. Yeah, and that happens in markets just as well. I mean, my frustration is more on two fronts. I think with a lot of people, it's it's actually people who get frustrated because they're like, well, why aren't people acting rationally? And it's like, well, no, the foundational insight of economics is however people are acting is how they construe rationality. <laughs> and that's a really useful insight, right? You can call yeah. it an insight. It sounds like a tautology to most people. No, yeah. no, I know. It does, it does, and that's fair. But I think there's something really good about the idea that um, people are not chaos monkeys. People are tr- like they have some sense of what they're trying to do and when they have re- when they have revealed preference through behavior that's the highest value uh sort of evidence you can get for what they actually believe and think way like how someone acts is way better than um how someone says they're going to act and and the best example of this i definitely i'm I, I i hate buzzwords but i do like the lean startup sort of approach because i think at its core is just scientific inference and what it says is like don't ask people what they're going to pay charge them something and just run that at a small scale yeah. um, the other side of the political economy thing that frustrates me is is mostly people who are software engineers who have been completely ideologically captured by their implicit understanding of what firms do, not realizing that actually they're all in this big macro structure that if you just learn about it and you learn about, for example, the structure of capital flow in Silicon Valley, you can learn a lot more and be a much more well-informed strategic actor in this sector. But um, if you don't, you're often going to be taken advantage of uh, by folks who have much better information about that. That's my hot take. Yeah, okay. which is probably true of a lot of things. Yes. If you're going to get into a market, understand the dynamics so that you know how to play that game well. Yeah. 
But a lot of software engineers are not. I mean, there, so really, there's a really good blog post the other day by Steve Blank, I think it was, talking about how uh, I, options are basically no longer that valuable. Uh, like, if you're a rational actor, you should not be taking no. You know, like it. I, 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 he, he's right that there's a problem. Yeah. Uh, his description of the dynamics, I believe, is incorrect. Okay, so sure. Uh, and, and and there were there were some technical issues as well in terms of like how founder stock works and like and like all that okay. stuff. Is that this is, is not is this the person who was saying? And I agree with this uh, that joining a startup is almost always a financially like he, bad move. He was he was saying it used to be a good move and mm-hmm. now it's a bad move. Oh, yeah. And the, so that's, and, a, that's a yeah, I mean yeah. that is that is that is its own issue, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. Uh, but he I I I like that people are starting to flag this problem mm-hmm. because because I do think it is it is a serious it, it is a serious problem. Um I don't think the way that he describes it is correct. Yeah. Um, and 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 the problem with that is that it, it it actually leads you to the wrong conclusion as to what you should do about it. So that's fair, and um, we can we can. I think we're a little too abstract. Yeah. We, yeah. Like if we want to discuss it, like what's the what's the thing? Like what's the core argument? Well, the core. I mean, the core argument, and, and I, I actually want to separate that because I agree, and I, I have not evaluated his argument on the fundamentals and, yeah, and the details. I, I mean, so, I, yeah. I just thought a ton about this as okay. a person who who. Who is trying to be a strategic who, actor in that context. And, yeah. yeah, and like who has been an early employee yeah. and will, you know, may eventually be one again mm-hmm. to like sort of start to understand like what that what that actually means. Yeah, so I think that's where um, I think broadly the point is more that there's a lot of – so political economy teaches us a lot about the mechanisms by which resources are allocated, by which interests are aggregated, by, by which choices are made, and a lot of that – actually governs is, – is the superstructure around something like tech in Silicon Valley. But there's a lot of people who make decisions only kind of staying at the level they're in and not going up yep. one or two or three levels. Yeah. And, you know, I see it a lot in – like there's going to be a lot of people who are going to realize that what happened in 2001 – is like there's going to be some fundamental similarities to the next few years, likely. I mean, I don't know. I'm not making bets on this. But – um and there's a lot of people who are ahistorical in their memory, and their time frame is like the last few years. And I, I was actually talking to some recent graduates who were coming, and they had like all done an internship, and they're software developers, and they were like, oh, you know, this, that, and the other. And like, they're like, what's your one piece of advice? And my, my piece of advice was like, winter is coming. Like, you've only known this labor market, and let me tell you how this labor market compares to the distribution over the last 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and... The fundamentals are not there in terms of the value exchange for this to stay up here. But there's a lot of people making decisions constantly around here yeah. with like a one to two year frame for their for their data sample. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, so like like this is definitely also kind of one of our running themes. Oh, yeah. Like which is which is basically if you want to be good at your job, you need to, number one, really understand the context uh, of your business, like mm-hmm. both inside and outside. So how 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 does it work internally, and what is it trying to do in the world? Mm-hmm. And then and then shift your thinking up multiple levels mm-hmm. so that you can actually reason about the decision making. Mm-hmm. And you're not just like I want to write this code. Why won't you let me write this code? Yeah. Or I want to build this model. Why won't you let me build this model? Like you sort of understand the pressures that your your manager is under that that mm-hmm. your management exactly. team is under, that your commercial leads are under, and can more effectively reason about about why they might want something mm-hmm. different than the thing that you want. Exactly. And I think that's where political economy is useful for going even past that scale and above, even at the in, inside firm level, into the interaction of firms and yeah. the interactions of firms with in regulated spaces with government. Yeah. Like there's an interesting talk. I mean, if you think about a lot of the big companies that are around right now in tech, they're entering spaces or have entered spaces or are big in spaces that um, either through their choice of service offering and or through the scale that they've reached in the case of some of the big tech actors like Facebook. There's not like Facebook intrinsically. Is there something about it that requires regulation? Well, it's really once it gets to a certain scale that you start to realize that, oh, this market actor is also big enough 
that um, it's embedded in a legal and political infrastructure where, like now, the firm's decision making is based by, in part, like, I does anybody have any doubt that Facebook's doing polling? Like, of course they're doing polling. Yeah. So every, every like, I do I I do survey research for for Patreon, right? Like, yes. How is how is how is Facebook not doing the same thing? Yes. Okay. No. Exactly. So I mean, I think, but that's where people tend to think that it it stops at the wire's edge, and and in particular, I think there's a lot of people who are like, well, people should just be rational and politics is not rational it's just like yelling into the void yes. and and i think that's where political economy is useful in saying again there's a method to the madness and what you see as irrationality in the rhetoric or discourse is not necessarily how the actual substantive decisions that get made pan out and what the mechanisms are by which they pan out yeah i mean I'm, oh uh, yeah so i think there's uh, there's an advantage in contrasting it with regular economics so yeah. the Regular economics mostly takes place from the market's eye view, mm-hmm. right? And it gets to ignore, like, your your assumption of rationality is two things in regular economics. One, it's like a convenience so that you can ignore the, the nitty-gritty details and your math all ties together. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also a – it is a um, – it's a normative assumption, right? Like, it is like – Oh, this is the way you should operate if you're going to succeed in market. So it is like it is partly a, a normative mm-hmm. thing, and then because they're oper- like most of the analysis is taking place at the marketplace level, it's not that important that those be accurate for each individual actor because yeah. you assume that the ones that succeed and and the survival bias aids you, mm-hmm. right? At least in, in the theoretical models before you actually get into the real world data. Yeah, political economy does not necessarily dwell at that market's eye view Mm -hmm. and it's like you're in uh, you know maybe your company or your faction or Mm -hmm. your like the thing that you're thinking about may not be the one to succeed and so it thinks of these things like it has more of a perspective where you know companies are like going to look rational when you look at only the ones that uh that succeed but in truth most of the decision making is like Something along the lines of, well, I'm going to do the same thing I did yesterday unless something comes along to, like, tell me to do uh, to do something drastically different. Mm-hmm. Right. Those beliefs so, are going to be sticky. Yeah. So, like, yeah. the, uh, the failure set is getting removed from the system. So you're actually just looking at the ones that are highly adapted to the environments that they happen to sit inside. It, it's it's a thing. I feel like when when we complain about like engineers that want everything to be rational and yeah. are angry that <laughs> things are not rational, I like feel a little bit of like man, like some who did this. You know, liberal economics kind of did this, didn't they? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting, right? There's a you know you've seen the Usual Suspects. Yeah. Uh, so it, like you could almost say the greatest lie the economists ever told us was that it was not a normative. <laughs> feel it, it's, right? def- it's definitely normative it's right? definitely normative and it's implicitly normative even though there's like well this is just how the world works but i think there is something really powerful about taking the positive side out of it because it does lead you to i, I think the question is is it normative in the sense that it's saying you should do this i think that's in some ways kind of a People, that's someone falling in the trap of just not being like you got to play the game and say okay well this is actually a set of descriptive uh, mechanisms in both the case of economics and political economy as well as a set of analytic tools to be able to reason about things and then you can if you have a problem can come to a normative conclusion with this tool set uh, um, and then uh, the people who built on. that tool set had a specific set of normative problems they're building yeah, for absolutely and that's the absolutely where, um, absolutely you have to uh, remind yeah. those of us who are economic idiots <laughs> what normative means oh yes so we, we do this a lot normative okay. yeah. means um, opinionated or like a a like judgment a value judgment right uh, positive is simply descriptive yeah. so a normative thing would be like this happens or sorry a positive thing would be this happens and a normative version of the same Mm -hmm. sentence would be this should happen Mm -hmm. i see and should always has an implicit goal that's really it so so you're basically saying that uh economics like market economics or or as a field is like fraught with survival bias well there's just this really i honestly it's it's just I don't know. Maybe it's it's ironically better explained by the sociology of the economics profession, but it really is that sometimes um, I think economists come off as if they're saying you should do this, and then you're like, well, are you saying that? And they're like saying, no, well, you should – 
but only because it, it played out in this way and look at my work, which describes it positively. And therefore it means you should, because I, I if see. you accept the positive argument, then yeah. it implies that you should, but it's a little bit of it's this, you know, very complicated yeah. it's a complicated relationship. Yeah. Economists yeah. would like to say that there's no normative aspect to their work at all. Yeah. yeah. And the, I think of what you gave them an alternative, like the normative rationalities salt literally is the only way that you can have one answer out of your yeah. equilibrium mm-hmm. equations. And that's why it exists in economic models. Yeah. But also, I think even when you press like economists on this thing that they've like used instrumentally to like make their equations come out okay, mm-hmm. they also believe in it yeah. because they've used it over and over again. Yeah. Right. Like, so I, be- I, I, I will just tell you what this sounds like to me again as like an economic idiot is uh, uh, maybe about 10 years ago or so, uh, I read the book uh, Good. Uh, good to great, mm-hmm. which is that famous one about. Uh, so I think is that Peter Thiel or is uh, Jim, no. Jim Jim uh, Jim Collins? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it was like at, at the time that it came out, it was this huge bestseller. Like every MBA, it, like every MBA on the planet was basically forced to read it. He was like, "This is how you build great companies," mm-hmm. and had analyzed like seven or eight like very very successful companies and found the common themes through them. And was like, you do these things, you get great company, woohoo. Mm-hmm. And you look today at like which companies were on that list, and it was Blockbuster and Wells Fargo. And, yeah. and, and like so, uh, seven out of the eight of them have been spectacular failures. It turns out he very heavily overfit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reason that he overfit was that he completely ignored the failure set. Uh, and, and so like did not look at like, well, uh, out of all of the companies mm-hmm. on the planet at this time, uh, who was doing all of the, uh, you know, there mm-hmm. was probably something you could draw from that. And, and really the thing you probably mm-hmm. should draw from it is try to be good, but, but you will end up adapted to the environment that you're in. And when that environment shifts, it's going to be very hard for you to stay good. Mm -hmm. Right. So in a world of physical distribution, blockbuster dominates very, very difficult to displace Mm -hmm. things move to the internet. And all of a sudden everyone wants to stream. They're not set up for that. They're dead. Yeah. And you're going to (laughs) be, you're going to have, People running logistic regressions on the deck of the Titanic, as it yeah, sinks. Right? Yeah, yeah, That'll yeah, be the corollary uh, in the data science world to the violinist, right? Yeah. yeah um, you're like, like it's, well, it's but like, like why isn't this working? And you're like, well, the game's changed. Yeah. Um, there's actually a really good talk by Andrew Clay Schaefer, who is at um, his uh, Twitter handle is Little Idea, and I find him to be a very thoughtful person. Um, and gave a talk a number of years ago. Um, called There Is No Talent Shortage. And it's a very interesting because it's like multi-parts, kind of goes all around. But it kind of talks about this dynamic of how games change. And mm-hmm. in the worst way to compete is to misunderstand which game you're playing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And this does get to a general... I, I want to like kind of tie it because I don't want to just like spend this entire thing not talking about data, but I think there's an interesting overlap with data. No, that's fair. Um, we, like, yeah. we are the data science podcast that talks about a little about <laughs> okay. actual yeah, data I science mean, yes. because, and, and, and because we think, this is, yes. Yes. We think it should be out there in the world yeah. Yeah. Totally. with problems yeah. and you have to think about those problems yeah. before you run the numbers. Yes. Yeah, that... that that, by the way, is also the reason that I, you know, I will generally advocate to people, like, don't play your career like a video game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because if you if you index heavily to the rubric of the mm-hmm. company that you work for, that's what you're doing. Mm-hmm. You, you are building in a very strong implicit assumption mm-hmm. that that company is is a is either going to be monstrously successful on its own mm-hmm. or that whatever market it is adapting into mm-hmm. is the winner. Uh, yeah. and and like then if you index to the rubric you'll be fine but if the game shifts like you don't you no longer have the breadth and flexibility mm-hmm. that you might have had if you were indexing to value or goals mm-hmm. and oh, man that is like you don't you have no idea but that's actually what my thesis was right uh, yeah. I was like examining the labor market outcomes of people who spent a long time at a particular company uh-huh. and irrespective of lots of other things, if you had more time at a particular company, you last long, your unemployment spells last much longer. Interesting. Um, 
It's well. There's an yeah. interesting. I I I came out of college at a very weird time because it was just before the Great Recession. It was like yeah. months. Like I was straddling that line, and I graduated with people who missed that line. And yeah. then I have seen the sort of long casting shadow now about I guess ten years or a little more than ten years later um, of I don't know, twelve years ago. Um, of what has happened where, you know, I knew people who could only work service jobs for three years, even though they went to Berkeley and got a pretty good degree. And yeah, I mean, a lot of people had this and then you, but so the interesting thing is I also saw the dynamic of the people who were pursuing the more traditional quote unquote paths. I can count, I, I was saying this back then because I guess uh, from my personal outlook, I'm just more of a chaos monkey. So I like ambiguity and I like all these kind mm-hmm. of crazy things. And, um, and I saw these people who were going into law and I was just like, ironically, I, you know, this is actually when the econ blogosphere was really big and I was reading a lot of these, uh, econ blogs where they're talking about the, the complete collapse of the legal labor market and how it's going and like how you also have this sticky, useful from political economy context, the stickiness where you have a lot of law schools that are still around, even though their graduates are not actually making money mm-hmm. and, and the worst part was the funny thing is I would argue with these people and they would always want to argue about it and would argue from first principle because that's the kind Wait, of person lawyers? who wants to do. I know exactly because yeah. that was the kind of person who wanted to go into law. And I was just like, well, I'm just looking at the data. Like, do you have other data? And it was a different approach. And now I see so many people, the number of people who went to law school who graduated the same year as me and now are software engineers is hilarious to me. <laughs> um, There's like almost all of the really good baseball bloggers lawyers yeah. from that era. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's like, but but I will say, like, it, if you're a software engineer, if you're a data scientist, like, mm-hmm. that's not a safe haven either. Totally. No, no, no. It could be like, the next one. The environment right? like, is going to shift yes. again. Well, and that's and like, what, and like what other specific things... adaptations you made to your environment mm-hmm. you yeah. did not spend on the specific adaptations that will make, like, that you mm-hmm. did not spend that energy on the specific adaptations that will be in the next environment, which are mm-hmm. not easy to predict. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and this is, I think there's a to- yeah. there's a useful synthesis here, which is, do you go towards, this is sort of what you're talking about in terms of like the advice you give to people in terms of applying their career. Like, is your eye on your skill set? Because that's basically a highly leveraged bet on the value of that yeah. specific skill set. Or is your eye towards value creation? Yeah. And where you see opportunities in the org you're at to like, oh, no one knows how to do X. And for some reason, this is now really valuable to our strategy. This is how data scientists came about. And this yeah. is how I think... You know, you see right now the talk, I actually think quite fairly, is of I'm not I don't like the tech trends. I think there's a lot of BS out there. I do buy some of the AI and ML stuff because there's going to be I mean, this is coming up in, in data science, there's just the commodification of certain aspects of prediction and aspects of decomposition. Yeah. Um that is now good enough that the value is upstream. Like that value is just like being created by a bunch of real smart people, paid a lot of money by Google to create TensorFlow. And like now it's kind of out there. And the question is, how do you marshal that value towards other yeah. things? Well, it is, it is, it is upstream and, and downstream. Yeah. Right. Like, like it sits at both ends. Uh, if you can be one of those people who Google mm-hmm. will pay a bajillion dollars to to develop TensorFlow, like, yeah. by all means, go be one of those people. Yeah. But understand that at, at a certain point in time, there's going to be 30 of those people in the world. Mm-hmm. So, like, unless you really, really, really have reason to believe that you should be one of them, mm-hmm. like, go do something else. Yeah. And so, like, everyone else is going to need to migrate to the other end of, like, figure out how you actually do something useful with mm-hmm. these tools. And there you have to lean into the ambiguity. Like, mm-hmm. that, like, if you think about value creation, like, there's no rubric for that. It's, yeah. it's, it, and, and if you index towards how value was created in the past, it, like, like, that is a leveraged bet I would be very uncomfortable making mm-hmm. because that value has already been created. Mm-hmm. And, and so it will continue down, down, uh, down that, uh, uh, that, that, uh, that, uh, commoditization pathway. Mm-hmm. Like, if you want to get out of that, like, you've got to go to the places where nobody knows what they're doing yet. Mm-hmm. Well, I, th- I think there is, so it, like, the prediction y- y'all are putting on the table here mm-hmm. is, that there's going to be a lot of specialization in the middle part of the data science uh, product stack, right? That there's going to be a lot of specialization on the transform 
and predict and categorize and decompose mm-hmm. motion. That on the other two ends of that, the the part where you interpret those outputs or figure out a way to implement it into something that mm-hmm. is not necessarily the decomposing algorithm, or at the data ingestion, like how do I turn this uh, like exhaust into something mm-hmm. that the the algorithm yeah. can actually mm-hmm. do algorithmic things to? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like those parts are the harder to like. There you don't necessarily have a bet that those are going to be highly automated um, mm-hmm. skills in the future. Although I think the, the ingestion portion, uh, we've made some, there's some, uh, there, there's been not zero progress on that. In the last yeah. Five years. I, I, uh, there's been not zero progress. I, I have skepticism that that, that that is a fully automatable problem mm-hmm. because those inputs are connected to the outputs. And so like the context matters. Mm-hmm. Um, you can automate the like you can automate the, the nuts thing. and bolts, mm-hmm. but like the decision of I use this data and not mm-hmm. that data, I'm not sure that that is automatable. I agree. I, I, I agree with that. And I wanna like I actually think this gets to a very interesting area, which is I would even go further past ingestion and, and it kind of touches what you're talking about, which is how data gets produced and specifically in this context like there's i think people forget that a lot of these things that are commodified data science aspects now where it's the modeling it's the predictive stuff it does now rely like the constraint for a long time was simply the you needed a lot of data there were two constraints there was you need a lot of data and most people didn't have a lot of data and the other side of it was you needed a, a compute infrastructure to be able to handle this now both of those problems have kind of been solved for certain categories of problems but what's more interesting and i want to argue for data science is thinking about how do you create a product value that creates data exhaust, right? And this is actually where Google's yeah, been yeah, really the, good. Uh, the uh, feedback loop idea. Basically. Yeah, and I mean, capture, reCAPTCHA is yeah. a really good example where they're like, oh, we're yeah. going to make you do all these dumb, like, find the cars yeah. in pictures. Okay, you're labeling images for yeah. us. <laughs> yeah, and, it, and, and people, I think this is where people need to look at, again, it gets, it becomes more helpful if you don't, if you're like, well, why, man, Google invented this dumb thing that makes me look at cars rather than be like, why are they making me look at cars? All of a sudden you realize you you, you can get stuck in not understanding kind of where, you know, as Gretzky used to say, like where the puck's going. You want to get yeah. to where the puck's going, not where the puck is. Yeah. And I do think there's a really interesting sort of discussion about hockey what are the analogy. systems that, huh? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm from New England, so we're basically right. in Canada. Go Leafs, go. Oh, Sorry. We're on, we're on episode no, 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 no. 17 it's playoffs. for our first hockey analogy. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of amazing. It's playoff time. <laughs> yeah, it is playoff time. Go Sharks. Um, I do want to, but like the thing here I want to point out, because I think it is it connects to the political economy, is when you talk about product stuff, you talk about blah, 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 and how data gets created, and what are the systems or product offerings you make to get the right data. Um, and you talk about data exhaust, where it's like, well, maybe you have a product thing, but actually the product is a Trojan horse to get data that is the real core value that the company is pursuing. And this is all over the place. Like, this is all over the place. Mm-hmm. You get to a really interesting place where you start to think about how, um, who makes the decisions about what data is created how can you how can you actually gain the competitive edge by novel creation of data rather than by better uh, instrument better better parameterization in your modeling of the existing uh, data you, right like you, that's it yeah you that's are, the competitive edge you are basically revealing the secret of every of every successful machine learning backed startup. Yeah, no, yeah. If they have novel yeah. data, then it works. Yeah, if they, yeah, if it, they it, have it, novel algorithms, then they're yeah. like, oh, and, wow, 100% and like, better. And, yeah. like, this is not unknown. Like, every yeah. venture capitalist in the Valley knows this. Yeah. If you go to pitch a machine learning startup and... It, and I think you're done in Krugering this, this <laughs> opinion. I think that you're comparing knowledge of this thing to a group of highly elite peers <laughs> where, like, the sheer number of AI startups that are just like, look, we'll do fancier algorithms yeah. on you indicates that there's quite a few VCs that don't mm-hmm. know this as a matter uh, of fact. So, so I, again, you're making I, – I think you're making assumptions based on based – on, on on information that uh, that you're inferring, I I would bet that almost every single one of of those startups when they pitched basically said, 
we've got a decent algorithm right now, or we've got a great mm-hmm. algorithm right now and a lot of expertise, and here's how we're going to build our data moat if, mm-hmm. if we can get this working. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, it, it, you would be foolish to walk in with, with a pitch deck today mm-hmm. and, 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 and essentially say we're not going to be creating. That's like, fair. Like, 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 like we, we will not get proprietary access to something. That's fair, funnel. but they're still, their sales model still assumes I, I, that you, you don't, like, the people yeah. they're selling to is, don't know yeah. this. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, I mean, it, it, it hasn't translated, like, like their copy is not going to reflect this. Mm-hmm. Uh, at, at least partly because who would buy a product when when like the sales pitch is all you need is to give us all of your data and give it yeah. to no one else <laughs> and then we're gonna build this proprietary flow and and like make an amazing and, and like make an amazing product just like trust us as we try to wipe out everything. Well, I don't know if you saw that there was like a doing this. I think there was a poll recently where they just told people what Google collected. Mm, yeah. uh, and then they're like, do you like, do you, uh, is this something you want Google collecting? Are you okay with this? Good. Yes. No. And it was like more than, it was definitely more than half. I think it was like 60%, maybe higher. We're saying, no, I don't want that. And so it is playing on just, yeah. but that's part of it. Like, unfortunately for better or worse, that's part of, if you think about what's the upstream thing to get the competitive advantage, it is effectively, Part of it is probably having, unfortunately, that information asymmetry with users. And yeah. I think there's a really good thing right now where we're having a moment of collective societal sort of discussion of, oh, we've let this go too far, we think, or people are, are realizing just how much is there. And a lot of it's coming through the Facebook discourse. But um, and we're not OK with it. And it's starting to see, again, from a political economy perspective. This is what you just saw a bill introduced the other day that was basically about um, constraining uh, certain algorithmic biases. It literally will regulate algorithms. Like this is a bill in the United States Senate, and you would never have seen that ten years ago. Totally, but this and this is the logic. There's a really great uh, author, Carl Polanyi. Is if you're going to read one person, read Carl Polanyi. Although, also yeah. probably don't read Carl Polanyi because yeah, it's not yeah. a great read book. A although, granted, we've we've been regulating algorithms like credit scoring for totally for for a long time. So there there is precedent very for ineffectively. This. Yeah, no, and that's where you do get to a, a bit of a Hobson's choice where it's, well, what is the, again, this is where I like the idea of really existing, both really existing regulation yeah. and really existing sort of unregulated context because yeah. there's trade-offs and yes, you're going to have trade-offs with regulation, but you're also going to have trade-offs with lack of regulation. So the question is really how do you most accurately assess those two situations yeah. if you want to be take it from a technocratic approach and solve it that way? Um I, I do think that the, the reason I mentioned Karl Polanyi is because he was this sort of insightful thinker that basically argued that it is the – and I'm – Otis, keep me honest. Mm, um, I mean I've only read the Cliff Notes. Okay, so I okay. can't, here's my summary of Polanyi. Like take all of the things, smart things that people say about Marx and throw away all of the dumb things that people <laughs> say about Marx and you basically that's got a, it. That's, <laughs> ooh, that's, a, that's a spicy hot take. Um, Fair. I, I think the way I'd I'd characterize his argument really as concisely as possible is markets tend to eat as much as possible, but markets are always embedded in a societal and in a political context mm-hmm. where the state simply has like laws. We have legal infrastructure. And so markets are always underneath that and you get this ebb and flow and the pendulum goes back and forth between markets eating more and more and more. But then you get the marketization of aspects of society that lead to outcomes that people don't want. So, you know, you literally just have people dying in the street because they cannot make any money. They cannot get a job. And so we have unemployment and we have a safety net because we don't think that that's a socially acceptable thing. Mm -hmm. And so we do that. The same thing with uh, child labor. Like child labor was a thing that literally happened because the marketization of the of the industrial revolution. Like this, there was a mechanism of supply and demand and what people want, what consumers want, combined with the technological boundary at the time that led to oh, you know that combined with basically the availability of child labor and lack of regulation around this, where there was a time where child labor was a very heavily utilized thing. And of course, in, in, in weak institutional contexts around the globe, there's still horrible problems with child labor mm-hmm. um, and child exploitation. So 
what Polanyi says is it's all well and good to talk about markets, but the way you have to think about them if you want to understand them really well is understand that they always hit a point where the broader society that they're subsumed by mm-hmm. pushes back. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it in that way, you're going to be better at understanding the long-term dynamics of these things. Right. And I think it is something that if you get into – all of a sudden you go from being frustrated with politics and frustrated with some of these bigger societal problems to understanding why a lot of the problems we still have in society are actually wicked problems that we haven't solved. Like we, the difference that social security made in terms of old age poverty cannot be overstated. We basically had most seniors dying in poverty and now we basically have most seniors not dying in poverty. And that's a massive, massive, massive shift that we simply solved, uh, by public policy and by collective action. But there's a lot of problems that we haven't solved because they're really, really, really hard. Homelessness is kind of a wicked problem. Yeah. I think there's a reference to a much more popular podcast called The Weeds. I've heard they, of the weeds. They discuss uh, iodine, like iodized salt, mm. as like one of the biggest triumphs of techno, uh, like technocratic uh, pushback against the market where they're just like, Guess what, everybody? You're using iodized salt, and it like it was a huge impact on people's health. Mm-hmm. And it was a fairly simple, like straightforward, one of the rare, fairly simple, uh, uh, like regulatory changes, yeah. and something like that. Uh, uh, fluoride had a had a had a similar effect, from my understanding. I, I, I have a whole bunch of family and friends in dentistry, and like there's a <laughs> there's a thing you can see in terms yeah. of like just the. The like cavity rates dropped by some ridiculous totally, amount. Yeah. All right, we are. This, the show notes for this are just going to be the most. <laughs> like, I'm going to have to put in more reference and Wikipedia links than I think any previous. Yeah, I love one. It. yeah, great. Uh, so, uh, you know, thanks, thanks for coming to talk to us, Dave. It was, yeah. uh, do you have anything you want to you want to plug? Plug. Yeah. Uh, yeah my SoundCloud might no. Um, yes. That's the trope, I suppose. Um, I do not have a SoundCloud. Uh, if. You appreciate the random yelling into this particular void, which happens to be a, a microphone. I do yell into the void on Twitter at all a farce because I believe Twitter to be all a farce. So it's just all a farce. It's not a pasta done in the style all a farce, as some people have thought. Um, and uh, yeah, I am always interested in talking to people doing interesting things. So if you, you know, I'm kind of on a break right now and exploring ideas from the backlog, as I put it. And um, wandering around into to our discussion of careers, I'm like, m- my bet is all on exploring weird, random corners of the world and finding nice. points of leverage with technology there. So I'm kind of doing that right now. And uh, yeah, if you're interested in like grabbing coffee sometime, in the, I'm in the band. I'm going around the all U.S. Right. And yeah. Oh, also shout out to um, Rob Crow. The greatest musician you've never heard of, San Diego musician, bunch of bands, and uh, highly recommend listening to all of his projects and supporting his music because he's your favorite musician's favorite musician, and I wish more people supported him because he's got, like, he never had a hit, basically, or I don't think he's ever cashed out on a lot of hits, but a great musician that I always have want to plug if i can all right awesome. um if you any of you want to write into us we're at feed uh sorry feed.back at smalldiffcast.com or at differences on twitter you can donate to the patreon page which is also under the vanity uh of patreon.com.com slash of differences um i'm old jacket on twitter uh and at em blue one on twitter all right thanks for joining us <laughs> <laughs>